are very blessed to have Tony Lawrence as our pulpit minister. Whatever the lesson, we can always count on Tony to preach the truth. Periodically, the elders ask Tony to preach a lesson on subjects that we feel are necessary and on issues that may be of concern to the congregation that we may be facing. Tonight is one of those lessons. Tonight's lesson is on understanding discipline, and we ask you to give Tony your full uh, attention. Thank you, Tony. Before we begin our lesson, I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey those who rule over you. And be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. I think it's important that you and I realize that we do have shepherds here, bishops, Overseers, we generally refer to them as our elders. Their purpose is to see that the truth is taught. That charge was given by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 when he said to take heed to yourselves and to the flock over which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Tonight I'm going to try the best that I can to fulfill the elders' desire for us to talk about church discipline. The lesson tonight will be a general lesson on the subject of church discipline. And then, Lord willing, two weeks from tonight we will have an additional lesson which will be much more specific with regards to a particular passage of Scripture. To begin with, I want to point out a lot of confusion exists regarding church discipline. In fact, everyone falls into four categories. So every one of us tonight, whether it's you or me, we fall into one of these four categories. Either we are well informed, that is, we know what the Bible teaches. We've read it, we understand it, and we practice it. The second category are those who are poorly informed. That is, they know some of what the Bible teaches. They understand a little bit about what it suggests. And they need to know just a little bit more to be a little more encouraged. The third category are those who are uninformed. Those who do not know what the Bible teaches. And they need to be instructed as to what discipline is how it is to be practiced, and what the Bible teaches on this subject. The fourth category is the misinformed. That is those who think they know what the Bible teaches. Someone else has said something to them, led them to believe something else, and they are without understanding and misinformed on it. And what's so sad is that Too many of us fall into those latter three categories. 
the fact that we really don't teach on it as much as we ought. We don't give a lot of attention to it. And I think the reason why is because nobody likes to talk about discipline. We don't like to talk about difficult problems that we face. But church discipline will not work unless the congregation is properly instructed and the congregation has the right intention. When Paul wrote the book of 2 Corinthians, he was following up on a passage in 1 Corinthians. He was going to have to practice church discipline when he arrived. You can read that from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, through chapter 13, verse 2. But Paul described the need to practice it and why it had not been fully practiced in chapter 10 and verse 6 when he said, And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The congregation has to be on the same page understanding the scriptures properly for us to do so as God intentioned. Tonight we're going to look at four things, and this is a general lesson. We're going to look, first of all, at the purpose of discipline as the Bible presents it. Second of all, we're going to look at the plan that is set forth in Scripture in the most general terms. Then number three, we're going to come back and look at the profit that is derived from it. And then I just want to deal with a couple of protests that I know people will raise so that we're not misinformed on the subject. Let's begin, first of all, with the idea of the purpose of it. And I will tell you that as I speak with and talk with people in the world, and sometimes people who are what I would refer to as weak Christians, their idea is is that church discipline is to get rid of undesirables, people we don't want among us, people that we may not appreciate, or is a partisan move. That is, that we somehow have decided we don't like this person and we're going to get rid of them. And the Bible gives an illustration of someone who did that and condemns it. In the book of Third John, John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Diotrephes had decided, I am going to pick and choose who I like, who I don't like, and you either conform to my personal views or I'll put you out of the church. That is not what the Bible means by church discipline. Be very careful here. The main purpose of discipline is for the saving of the soul. James in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 writes, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That is the sum and substance of what church discipline is 
trying to do. It's to try to reach the hearts of those people and get them to see that we don't want them to leave us. We want them to come back. But come back as God would have them to be. The purpose of discipline also must be viewed from the perspective of various groups. If I look in the Bible, I see one perspective with regards to the church. I see another perspective with regards to an individual. So let me just for a moment address that. As relates to the church, I'm talking about the body. I'm talking about the whole. Church discipline must be practiced because there's a disease that must not be spread to the healthy population. For instance, if someone of us here tonight was inflicted or afflicted with some sort of a deadly disease that could be communicated to someone else, we would want that person to be quarantined, if you will, brought aside so that it would not affect the healthy population. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Paul's point was to say that if you allow sin, unrepented sin, unrebuked sin to continue, that as regards to the church, it's infective because the next person would say, that's no big deal. There's no problem with that. It also instills a healthy fear within the Lord's people. In Acts chapter 5, if you'll remember, Ananias and Sapphira had lied to God. Sure, the apostles were there. They had lied. And what took place was Ananias died, Sapphira died. And here's what chapter 5 verse 11 said. So fear came upon all the church and all who heard these things. There's nothing wrong with the church having a healthy amount of respect for and fear of doing wrong. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 20, Paul said, Those who are sinning, Rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. We've got to make sure that we understand that with regards to the church, it's good for us, just like ever so often a teacher has to take a student who is acting out and practice discipline so the rest of the students will see and have a healthy respect for the teacher and the authority there. But as regards to the individual, as regards to that person, it is a spiritual tough love. It's when you love someone enough to do something to help them. Brother Jimmy Gibbeton wrote a book many years ago called Caring Enough to Correct. A good book. Because it emphasized that it is because we love them. In 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5, he says, You deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What you are doing is you want to destroy the fleshly desires 
so that you can save their spirit. As regards to the world, and that does have to come into play. When church discipline is practiced, what does it say to the world in which we live? The world easily sees hypocrisy among us. If the world looks among us and say, as 1 Corinthians chapter 5 addresses, such that is not even found among the Gentiles, if our behavior is not as good as the world's, what does it say? Listen to 1 Peter 2 and verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. We're going to be criticized in the world, but we should never give the world a real means to criticize us. In chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Implying that if we have done these other things, a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, we ought to be ashamed. Church discipline says to the world, we are consistent in what we believe and what we practice. And unless we see the proper purpose for discipline, we'll never understand its proper value. What we are trying to do is to save that person's soul. We are trying to say to the church, that's the way you ought to live. That's what we're saying to the individual. Your life needs to conform to God's will. We are saying to the world that we practice that which is true. Now let's talk about the plan of discipline for just a moment. Some equate withdrawing with discipline. Withdrawing from someone is the very last stage of discipline. In fact, the word discipline means a systematic instruction to train a person. Discipline is involved in many parts of the step of trying to train a person. Sometimes that withdrawal is the only thing that will get a person's attention and training. Let me point out to you, discipline may be private. It may involve, for instance, someone who knows their brother, their sister, is having a spiritual problem, and you go to them privately. Let me illustrate it to you. Apollos, who was a very eloquent man, one who understood the Scriptures well, though he was only trained to a certain level, Acts chapter 18 and verse 26 says, So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They took him aside. They said, Apollos, let us explain to you. Sometimes people don't realize the error of their behavior. If they don't, we can explain it to them. If they are good-hearted individuals, they say, oh, I didn't realize that. I need to change. Discipline sometimes may a brother be a brother helping another brother to see that. In Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, 
considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let me point out some key words in those two verses. Number one, overtaken in a trespass. It appears that this person has allowed a sin to overwhelm them. It appears that it's just got a hold of them. He said, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. What you are to do is to try to take that person and help them get back where they were. That's the idea of restoration. Don't miss the phrase, in a spirit of gentleness. The Greek word for gentleness is the word for meekness which indicates strength under control. Have you ever wanted to say, don't you know what you're doing? You're acting crazy. You're acting illogical. Sometimes you have to be very careful about what you say and how you say it so that you convey that you're actually concerned about them and not that you're trying to browbeat them. There are four levels of discipline that are taught in Scripture. For just a moment, I'd like for you to think about each of these levels with me. The first one being that of self-discipline. Yes, we do train and instruct and rebuke ourselves. I want you to listen to a few Scriptures here from Paul. He said, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. I suppose that every one of us in our own lives will at one time or another do what the last verse here says. Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Have any of you ever sat down and thought through your day's actions and say, did I say what I ought to have said when I was talking to this brother or that sister? Did I act like I ought to have acted when I was at my work and someone snapped at me? Did I act like a Christian when I spoke back? You see, if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't have to have anybody correct us. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27 says, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection Lest, when I have preached to my others, I myself should become disqualified. Yes, it's possible that a preacher who has preached many times and preached often on various topics could allow himself to become disqualified, unacceptable to God. It requires for every one of us a daily effort of trying to look at our lives to discipline ourselves. And the Bible teaches that. Second of all, the Bible teaches brotherly discipline. That is when you and I care enough about one another to say something. I've already mentioned James chapter 5, verse 19. Anyone of you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back. Who's the someone? Well, that's the elder's job. Yes, it is. That's a preacher's job. Yes, it is. That's a Christian's job. Yes, it is. Sometimes we have to be like Nathan. 
Nathan rebuked David for his adultery with Bathsheba. And when Nathan finally exposed to David, he said to him, You are the man. It dawned on David. He wept bitterly. Look what I have done. And he asked Nathan to pray for him. Then there is church discipline. That is when the whole congregation has to act as a body and practice discipline. Generally, this is when the congregation has to be made aware that there's a brother or a sister who's not living according to the teachings of Scripture. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4, I want you to listen carefully as Paul speaks this. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is by His authority, by His directions, when you are gathered together, we understand what that means, doesn't it? The gathering together. This is when the church comes together. Along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, or our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 18 and verse 17, which is another context, where you have brother against brother sin. You first go and show your brother his fault between you and him alone. If you won't hear with you, you take with you one or two, that at the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And then he says, and if he refuses to heal them, tell it to the church. The church is the body. This is the assembly. And if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be to you like the heathen and the tax collector. You see, once the church has been informed, the church is to try to do what it can to teach, to encourage, and to help that person. The fourth level of discipline that is taught in Scripture is that of divine discipline. That's when God gets involved. And when God gets involved, it's really serious business. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 21, he's talking about Jezebel. He said, that woman who teaches and seduces my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. He says, I gave her time to repent of her fornication, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into a great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. God is saying, I will practice discipline if there is not repentance on their part. Now, too many people do not see profit in discipline. There's a lot of people who say, I just don't see that it's going to do any good. I've got to say, folks, when God's Word commands us to do something and we say it does not work, do you know what we're saying? We're saying that God doesn't know what He's talking about. The Creator of the universe, the one who created every one of us, who knows the number of hairs on our head, the one who is the author of our salvation, we say it does not work. We are claiming God doesn't know what he's talking about. 
Let me point out to you. Discipline works in our fleshly families. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, he says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as it seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I was reared by loving parents. They cared how I turned out. My father was a man of pretty stern discipline. When he told me to do something, he expected me to do it. And I learned the hard way sometimes, you do it. I told someone the other day, my father told me when I was a young man to get out of the bed, and I didn't get out of the bed. He said, if you don't get out of the bed soon, I'm going to throw a bucket of cold water on you. I found out what a bucket of cold water means in the bed. I respected him. Even though he's gone, I still respect him to this day. We understand it works in the worldly, or the fleshly sense. It works in the spiritual sense too. David said in Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. God got David's attention. Jeremiah 31, verses 18 and 19. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me and I was chastised. Like an untrained bull, restore me and I will return. For you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated because I rebore the reproach of my youth. He gives a big picture and he says, God disciplined Ephraim and Ephraim said, I deserved it. And I hit myself on the thighs and basically to paraphrase it, what was I thinking? What was I doing? One must trust that God knows what he is talking about in everything. Now, I recognize that not everyone is as informed as they should be. And I have heard the two protests that I'm going to deal with. The first one is, who are you to judge? Who are you? Did Jesus not say in John chapter 8, He who is among you without sin, let him cast the first stone at her. And so every one of us have got sin in our lives, so no one can judge. This comes from a misunderstanding of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. For what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
this discusses hypocritical judgment. That is where I, having a big sin in my life, look at you and say to you, you need to clean up your act. That's the reason why Galatians 6 verse 1 says, you who are spiritual restore such a one, not you who are perfect. Romans 2, 1 and 3, Paul talked about the Jews. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you judge who judge practice the same things. Verse 3, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things, that you will escape the judgment of God? The hypocritical part of it is what's wrong. Another aspect of it that is a part of this judging is superficial judgment. Where I look at you and I make a decision without knowing all of the facts. I just look at it on the surface. In John 7 and verse 24, Jesus said, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And Jesus himself talking about himself in verse 51 says, Does our law... Judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing. Who are you to judge? If I look at you and I make a judgment without the facts, then I'm not judging as I ought. But I will point out to you, the scriptures do say that we are to be judges. In 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, for what have I to do with judging those who are also who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are on the inside? But those who are on the outside, God judges. Therefore, put away yourselves the evil person. The latter phrase in verse 12, the question, do you not judge those who are inside? That is inside the body, in the church. That's who we are supposed to judge. God is going to take care of the world. God expects the church to take care of itself. The second protest is discipline is just being mean. People believe, the misinformed and uninformed, that whenever we practice church discipline, it's because we're just mean people. The person receiving the discipline may believe that at that time. If I were to ask you, how many of you believed when you were being punished by your parents that they were being mean? Every one of us would say, I think they liked it. I think they enjoyed it. If you were to ask somebody why they're going through that, most of them are going to say, yes, they're being mean. You get a little bit older, though, and you recognize something. Listen to chapter 12, verse 11. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Yet afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness in those who've been trained by it. How many of us look back now and appreciate the discipline we received? How many of us as parents enjoy having to practice discipline with our children? We don't enjoy it. A lot of that's misunderstanding. 
However, if it's practiced properly, it does convey love. I have not spent much time in the passage from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, but I do want to direct your attention to verses 14 and 15. Paul says, If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Now listen very carefully to verse 15. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Discipline is not about being mean to somebody. It's not saying, you're my enemy now. I hate you. I won't ever speak to you again. That's not it at all. In fact, he, you do speak to him because you admonish him as your brother. One who loves does discipline. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, he says, Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. In Proverbs thirteen twenty four, He who spares his rod... Hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. I don't know how I could put it any more plain than to say in the Bible, discipline is not about being mean, not about being cruel, it's about love for the soul and love for that person. Discipline is never pleasant, but it is necessary. The same God that commanded us to repent and to be baptized is the same God who commands us to withdraw from every brother that walks disorderly. Discipline must be motivated by a heart of love and a concern for one's soul. And if in my own heart I don't have the right attitude, then I've got something to repent of. If in my heart I'm not motivated by anything other than the fact that I care about them, then I too need some repentance. It's a command to be obeyed just like any other. I hope that I have communicated, at least I've tried to the best of my ability, to communicate what the Bible teaches about church discipline from a general perspective. I know there are many passages that I did not cover tonight. Lord willing, we will try to discuss those more later. If you're here tonight and you are not a Christian, let me point out to you that God does love you and this audience here loves you. We really care about where you spend eternity. God cared enough that he gave Jesus to die for you. He wants you to live eternally with him. But what he asks you to do is to repent of your sins, confess your faith in him, and be baptized. Then you stand with Jesus in full fellowship with the Father and with the Son, as we read in 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. It may be here that you're looking at your life as a Christian, and you say, I've not practiced the discipline on myself that I should And tonight I'm going to correct the things that are wrong. As we sing this song of invitation, 
If you need to respond, will you do that? As together we stand and sing.